Chapter 16 of The Cruise of the Esmeralda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marty on the Central Coast of California. The Cruise of the Esmeralda by Harry Collingwood. The Finding of the Treasure and What Followed. Knowing that there was work enough to occupy the party on the islet for probably the next two days, I did not consider it necessary to keep watch upon their labors, but left them with Forbes in charge, and joined the Desmond party in a ramble over the island. This, by following the ravines, the bottoms of which were comparatively free from undergrowth, we found less difficult of accomplishment than we had anticipated, and although the toil of clambering up the steep acclivities and over the smooth boulders that in many places encumbered the way, proved rather trying to our unaccustomed limbs. We nevertheless managed to make our way to the summit of the nose, as we called it, from whence we obtained a superb panoramic view of the entire island. That the place was uninhabited we could now no longer doubt, for although from our lofty standpoint we had the whole surface of the island spread out like a map beneath us. There was nowhere any break whatever in the dense vegetation which flourished so luxuriantly on the rich soil, nothing whatever to indicate the existence of cleared and cultivated patches, as there certainly would have been had the island been inhabited. Nor did we observe any sign or trace whatever of animals of any sort. Birds seemed to be the only living creatures inhabiting this lovely spot, and they appeared to swarm in thousands wherever we happened to come upon a comparatively open space. Fruits of several kinds abounded on the island, among the most abundant being bananas, mangoes, breadfruit, and coconuts. We were also fortunate enough to come upon several granadilla vines the product of which was just ripe, and we accordingly loaded ourselves with as many of these delicious fruits as we could carry. Our return journey was effected by a somewhat shorter route than which we had followed on our outward way, and eventually we hit upon a ravine down which brawled a small stream of deliciously sweet crystal-clear water, following which we came out upon the margin of the basin at the point where Rogers and his party were working. Despite the intense heat and a perfect plague of mosquitoes, the fellows were toiling as if for life, and had already succeeded in clearing a line of fully a hundred feet in length. I critically examined their work, pronounced it all right, and we then went on to the islet, Sir Edgar and I discussing, by the way, the distracting question of how the crew were to be dealt with in the event of our finding the treasure. The question seemed to resolve itself into this, that the men must either be taken away in the ship or left on the island, and if the former, they would certainly have to be taken as prisoners, since if free they would assuredly seize the ship, even if they had to murder me in order to accomplish their purpose. As prisoners, however, they would be worse than useless. They would be a continual menace 
and source of anxiety, Sir Edgar consequently agreed with me that I should be fully justified in leaving them, or at all events, the worst of them, behind. And this I at length determined to do, watching my opportunity to divide them up into small parties, upon some pretext, and making prisoners of them in detail, thus minimizing the risk of a fight, and its too probable accompaniment, loss of life. There would be no likelihood whatever of the rascals starving in such a land of plenty as the island had proved to be. They could not possibly suffer any very serious discomfort in so genial a climate and the treasure once secured, it would be no difficult matter to arrange for their speedy rescue. This matter settled, I felt somewhat easier in my mind, and now only required an opportunity to discuss and arrange the details with Forbes and Joe. On reaching the islet we found that here, too, wonderful progress had been made, the party under Forbes having already cleared a line through the scrub of very nearly four hundred feet in length. This was due to the fact that they had hitherto encountered no trees in the actual line of their work, though several had been very narrowly missed. It was apparent, however, that on the morrow they would be less fortunate, for which I was by no means sorry, as it would lengthen the duration of the work and afford me a better opportunity for completing my plans. That same evening after dinner, Forbes, Sir Edgar, and I discussed the matter in detail, and finally completed certain arrangements that appeared to us to promise a fairly satisfactory solution of the whole difficulty. On the following day, I found an opportunity to communicate to Joe the pith of these arrangements, which were to be put into operation as soon as ever the treasure, if found, should be safely placed on board the bark and he cheerfully undertook to maintain a constant watch for my signals, and to be ready for action whenever I should make them. The next three days passed uneventfully away, the men working perhaps not quite so hard as they had at the outset, but still making fairly good progress. The party on the islet had reached to within eighty feet of their goal when they knocked off that night. And now, for the first time, I think, I began to fully realize the momentous character of the issues that were probably to be decided within the next twenty-four hours. Would the treasure be found? Hitherto it had never occurred to me to seriously reflect that there might possibly be an unfavorable reply to this question. But now that only a few short hours lay between me and certainty, I suddenly began to comprehend how much depended upon whether that reply should prove to be a yea or nay, and an almost uncontrollable impatience to have the matter definitely decided took possession of me, rendering sleep that night an impossibility. But even with the impatient, though time may lag upon leaden wings, he passes at last, and the morning at length dawned upon me with my nerves quieted and steadied by exhaustion and the reaction from the night's intolerable excitement. As it was confidently expected that, if the treasure really existed, and still reposed in its alleged hiding-place, it would that day be found. The ladies determined to go on shore to witness its disinterment, taking the nursemaids and children with them in order that the latter might enjoy what would probably prove to be their last opportunity for a ramble on the lovely island. 
Accordingly, the party, being a large one, both gigs were manned, and all hands of us, even to the cook and steward, went ashore, leaving the ship to take care of herself, the wind being a gentle breeze from the eastward, or somewhat off the land, with a fine settled look about the weather. Rogers and his party resumed their usual work at the head of the basin, and Forbes with his gang vigorously attacked the narrow belt of scrub that still interposed between them and their goal. It happened, however, that this bit of scrub was more thickly dotted with trees than any other portion that they had yet met with, so that it was four o'clock in the afternoon before a very careful final measurement assured us that the most laborious part of our task had come to an end. The ground, however, was still covered with debris, which had to be cleared away before the actual digging operations could be commenced, and this occupied fully another hour. By this time the evening shadows had begun to climb up the hillsides. Nevertheless, the men seized their picks and shovels, and with renewed energy began to turn up the ground. They toiled thus for an hour, by which time they had excavated a hole some three feet deep in the center, and I had actually, with great reluctance, given the word to knock off, when Barr, driving his pick deep into the ground where he intended to leave it that night, struck upon something harder than soil. Hurrah, boys! he exclaimed. Here's something at last. Stick to it, and let's see what it is before we leave it. At it again they accordingly went, with such desperate vigor that the perspiration literally poured off their arms and down their necks, and in a few minutes they succeeded in laying bare the top of a solid timber chest, strongly bound with iron. They were very anxious to get this chest out of the ground there and then, but on attempting to clear the earth away from round about it, it was found that the chest was only one of several others all packed closely together, so that it would be necessary to reach one of the outer chests before any of them could be conveniently moved. We were consequently compelled to content ourselves that night with the knowledge that we had found something, and to wait until the next morning to ascertain the value of our discovery. The following sunrise found us once more en route for the shore this time provided with a couple of spare studding sail-booms to act as shears for the more convenient hoisting out of the chests, together with such rope, blocks, etc., as we should require for the purpose. The size of the chests, however, was such as would probably tax the strength of the entire party to handle them, and I was therefore reluctantly compelled to call in the assistance of Rogers and his party. Even thus reinforced, it soon became apparent that a heavy task lay before us, and it was not until the boatswain was piping to breakfast that the first chest was successfully broken out and raised to the surface. Breakfast was soon over that morning, and then the question arose, how were such ponderous chests to be conveyed to the ship? They measured roughly about two and a half feet square, and were so heavy that eight men all who could conveniently get round one of them, could not raise the weight from the ground, much less carry it along a narrow path, cumbered with stumps and prostrate trunks of trees. Greatly as I disliked such a proceeding, it seemed that there was no alternative but to break open each chest and convey its contents piecemeal to the boats, and this course was therefore perforce adopted. 
The task of merely breaking open the chest proved to be one of no ordinary difficulty, for they were constructed of solid oak, nearly three inches thick, so well made and so strongly bound with iron that I could not help surmising that they must have been the chests in which the Spaniards had originally stowed the treasure, and specially made for the purpose. They were black with age, but the timber was perfectly sound, while the iron bands, though more than half eaten away with rust, were still stout enough to give us an immense amount of trouble. At length, however, the first chest was broken open, and was found to contain sixty-four bricks, or ingots, of solid silver. They were arranged in four tiers of sixteen bricks each, exactly fitting the chest, and each brick weighed about a quarter of a hundredweight. Each chest, therefore, if all contained the same precious metal, would represent the value of sixteen hundredweight of silver. How many chests there were, we did not yet know, but it was evident that there were several. Some said there were eight or nine, but I thought there must be more, judging by the way in which they were arranged in the ground. The men were now divided into two working parties, one of which, under my supervision, carried the silver to one of the boats, while the other, under Forbes, proceeded to break out and open another chest. The contents of one chest I considered a sufficient load for the gig, and accordingly, as soon as this amount had been placed in her, we shoved off for the ship. My crew, consisting of Joe, the Norwegian, the Negro, and an American named Barr. On arriving alongside, the silver was simply passed up the side and pitched down the after hatchway upon the ballast for the present. The ladies, who had elected to remain on board this day on account of the heat, were so filled with excitement and delight at the sight of the silver and the news of our find, that they could no longer remain quietly where they were. They must needs go ashore once more and see all this wealth brought out of the ground, and accordingly, upon our return passage, they went with us, taking the maids and the children with them. On our arrival at the islet we found the second gig awaiting us, with her cargo in her, which the other party had just finished loading, so we left the one boat and took the other, treating this cargo as we had the last, and so the work went merrily on until the men's dinner-time by which time we had raised and transported eight boxes of silver, and it had by this time been ascertained that there were eight more still to be dealt with. A hurried meal was snatched and the work was resumed, three more of the chests being disposed of by three o'clock in the afternoon. Then another surprise met us. The next chest contained gold instead of silver, the ingots being only nine in number, somewhat larger than the silver ingots, and weighing, as nearly as we could estimate, about one hundredweight each. Each of these gold ingots was neatly wrapped and sewn into a covering of hide. On our return from the ship, after conveying this precious cargo on board, we were met with the news that two other chests, since opened, also contained gold. And not to detain the reader necessarily, it eventually proved that the remaining cases, two in number, likewise contained the same precious metal. The total find thus consisted of eleven chests containing seven hundred and four ingots of silver and five chests containing one hundred and thirty-five ingots of gold. 
All through the long, hot afternoon the work went on with unremitting energy, for it soon became apparent that darkness would be upon us before the last of the treasure could be moved. I was just completing the transfer of the third chest of gold to the ship when the sun sank in a perfect blaze of splendor below the horizon, and a few of the brighter stars were already twinkling in the zenith when we ranged up alongside the other boat at the landing place upon the islet. As I stepped out of the light boat into the loaded one and directed my crew to follow, one of the men, an Irishman named O'Connor, touched his forehead in the approved shellback style and observed, "'Have you please, sir, Mr. Forbes was saying, would you be so kind as to step along the hole afore he makes your next trip to the ship? He's after wanting to speak to ye.' "'Oh, very good.' said I, and stepping ashore I directed Joe to go across to the other side of the basin to fetch the ladies and children who had crossed earlier in the afternoon, and now stood waiting to be conveyed back to the ship, and then went groping my way along the dark, uneven path toward the hole. The man O'Connor and somebody else, who it was I could not distinguish in the gloom, were stumbling along in front of me and making very poor headway, I thought, for I quickly overtook them. They were in my way, working along as they were, two abreast, for the path was very narrow, so I said to them, Here, let me pass you two. I am in a hurry. They stepped aside without a word, one to one side of the pathway and one to the other, and as I passed between them, one of them cried, Now! And before I could even so much as think, they both flung themselves upon me and bore me to the ground, one of them springing upon me from behind, with his arms round my neck and his knee into the small of my back, while the other dashed himself upon his knees on my chest and gripped me by the throat by one hand as he pressed the cold muzzle of a revolver to my temple with the other. A single war or a movement, and I'll pull the trigger on ye as sure as death ejaculated O'Connor between his set teeth as he tightened his grip upon my throat. Now, Bill, fill of his pockets and take his barkers away, if he has any, while I hold him. Now, listen to what I'm a-telling ye. The others, that's Mr. Forbes and the gentleman, is already took, so you needn't be expecting any help from them. And as we've got such a hap of gold and silver out of this hole, we're going to be content with it and intend to take the trifling liberty of burying the ship to carry it away with us. You can have the rest yourselves, and much good may it do ye. Ah, that's right, Bill, as the latter extracted a brace of loaded revolvers from my jacket pocket. Just feel, while ye are about it, have he has a knife, and take that from him, too. Now are ye sure that's all? As the other man, who now proved to be Rogers, took my knife away also. Very well now, Captain Dear, you may get upon your feet, for understand me, have ye attempts to lay hands upon either of us, the other'll shoot ye through the head without waiting to say, by your leave. Ah, now, it's kilt he is, I do believe. As the fellow rose from my prostrate body and saw that I made no movement, for all this time he had kept so tight a hold upon my throat that he fairly strangled me, and though I still, in a dreamy way, heard him speaking, my strength had entirely left me, and I was scarcely conscious of my surroundings. I'll fire a shot to let the others know that it's all right, and then we'll have to carry him as far as the boats, remarked Rogers. Perhaps a dip in the water may bring him round. 
Such extreme measures, however, proved unnecessary, for my throat once released, my senses began to come back to me, and by the time that we had reached the shore of the islet, I was once more able to stand. Arrived here, I was compelled to enter the empty gig, and was carried across to the opposite shore of the creek, where the ladies still remained, my order to bring them across having been countermanded in a whisper by one of the men the moment that I had turned my back. On reaching the other side I was ordered out of the boat, a loaded revolver being exhibited as a hint to me to hasten my movements, but as I stumbled forward over the thwarts, Joe offered me the support of his arm, murmuring in my ear as I stepped out on the sand. Cheer up, Captain. This here's most unexpected move, and no mistake, but the ship ain't gone yet, and from what I heard passing among the others just now, afore you come up, I ain't by no means sure as they'll leave tonight. Some of em is that greedy and they wants to stop and have a shy at the other treasure, and if they does, there's no knowing what may happen betwixt now and then. And if they makes up their minds to go, I don't go with em. I'll slip overboard and swim ashore if there's no other way of joining you. I only had time to murmur a word of thanks for this expression of sympathy when he left me and returned to the boat, which immediately shoved off for the islet. The ladies, who with the nursemaids and the children still stood waiting to be conveyed to the ship, saw by the actions of the men that there was something amiss and now approached me, inquiring anxiously what was the matter. Of course I had no alternative but to explain to them that the men had risen in mutiny, and had seized the ship, and although I made as light of it as I could, it was a sorry tale at best that I had to tell them. I was still in the midst of my story when the phosphorescent flash of oars became visible in the black shadow of the islet, and presently the outline of the boat telling dark upon the starlit surface of the still water, was seen approaching. As she drew near, the voice of Rogers came pealing across the water. Sure, ahoy! Just walk a bit farther back from the water's edge. There, or we shall be obliged to fire. We're about to land Sir Edgar, and if there's any sign of a rush at the boat, we shall shoot to kill. So if you don't want to be hurt, you'd better stand well back. Hold on there a moment, I answered back, disregarding the threat. Surely, men, you do not intend to abandon us here unarmed, without a shelter from the weather, and with only the clothes we stand up in? Oh, you'll do well enough, I don't doubt, replied Rogers, brutally. You don't want arms, because there's nobody nor nothing here that'll hurt you. You don't need clothes, because the climate's so warm that you can do without them. And as to shelter... Why, we've left all the axes and shovels ashore. You're welcome to them, and if you can't build a house with such tools as that, you deserve to go without. There's plenty of fruit and plenty of good water, so you won't starve. And lastly, there's a chance for you to get all the treasure that's in the other hole, if we decides we don't want it ourselves. What? I exclaimed indignantly. After stealing my ship and my treasure from me, you will not go to the small trouble of passing the ladies' and children's clothing into a boat and sending it? Well, if you won't stand back, take that, interrupted Rogers, and as the word left his lips there was a flash, a sharp report, and a bullet went singing close past my ear. At the same moment I felt my arms seized 
by a white figure that unexpectedly appeared at my side, and Miss Merivale's voice, rendered almost inarticulate by scorn and anger, exclaimed, Leave the cowardly brutes alone. You shall not humiliate yourself further by stooping to ask a favor from them, even on our behalf, nor shall you wantonly expose yourself to the risk of being murdered in cold blood. I will not have it. With which she dragged me unresistingly to the spot where her sister and the children stood, and then, without a word of warning, flung herself prone upon the sand and burst into a perfect passion of tears. "'Nay, do not give way thus, I pray you,' I said as I knelt beside her and raised her prostrate form in my arms. "'Our plight is bad enough, I grant you, though not so bad that it might not easily be very much worse. And if you will only try to be brave and patient, we will soon arrange matters so that you shall not be altogether destitute of comfort and—' "'Do you think I care for my own comfort?' she interrupted me passionately. "'No!' As that wretch said, we are not likely to starve, and I suppose you and Edgar will be able to build such a shelter as will suffice to protect us from the sun and rain. It is not that. It is, oh, the base, ungrateful, contemptible creatures to treat you like this. I am sure they will be punished for it. Ay, that they will, exclaimed Sir Edgar, cheerily as he joined the group. Well, Emmy darling, and you chicks— Will it be very dreadful hardship for you all to sleep on this beautiful soft white sand to-night? To-morrow we shall have light enough to work by, and I have no doubt that before the end of the day St. Ledger and I will have contrived to stick up a hut or something to cover you. Why, children, this is a regular, genuine picnic, in which we shall have everything to do for ourselves, and you will be able to help, too. It will be glorious fun for you, will it not? and so on. Never in all my life before had I seen a man take a heavy, bitter blow so bravely as this gallant gentleman did. He knew, for he had already had time to fully realize it, all that so cruel an abandonment meant to him and his. Yet his courage never faltered for a moment. Not the faintest glimpse did he allow to appear of the anguish that must have at that moment been ringing in his heart. No, his voice, his manner, and his whole bearing were inflexibly dominated by the determination to cheer and encourage the dear ones who were now absolutely dependent upon him and him alone for support and encouragement to meet and face this sudden, dreadful reverse of fortune. As I looked at and listened to him in astonishment and admiration, I felt ashamed at my own despondency at the condition, temporary only though I believed it to be, of complete helplessness to which the blow had reduced me, and in contemplating such indomitable courage I not only learned a lesson that I trust has benefited and toned my whole life since then, but I also gathered fresh courage and resolution to face the responsibilities and demands of the immediate present. End of chapter 16 Read by Marty on the Central Coast of California.